I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Darren Hill, who is the Managing Director of Positive Politics. Darren, you are a Valleys boy, I think, aren't you? Well, I grew up in Port Talbot, but most of my family uh, from the Valleys, so I'm sort of a, a genuine product of Neath Port Talbot, I think, because I span both parts of the county. And what sort of influence do you think coming from that area has had on you? Well, um, I think my my upbringing, and particularly um, my background and, and the impact on my family of different industrial changes had, had quite a profound impact. When I was, was relatively young, one of my uncles who worked in the steelworks had to emigrate to Canada when the size of the steelworks in Port Albert was hugely curtailed. And then several of my uncles were involved in the miners' strike, being practising miners. My father, who had died when I was very young, he'd been a miner as well. One or two of my uncles were particularly political. One was a member of the National Committee of the uh, Transport and General Workers Union and had been for a number of years. Another uncle, he became in the 90s uh, the leader of Neath Potolba Council. So I'd come from quite a political, quite an, in, an industrial background, I guess, even though I didn't particularly follow either steelworking or, or mining myself, thankfully. And how did that feed into what you eventually studied? I think it, it it gave me a sort of left a centre critique, particularly the the um, the time around the miners' strike. I, I think shaped me quite heavily, and I I can probably date the mid eighties when I was still at school from, to the time where actually I knew I wanted to study history and I wanted to study politics, which is what I ended up doing. And, and in school, it was a, it was a particularly lively political. Discussion because of some of the other people who were in the same class as me. I mean, it was like some sort of Welsh Eton, really, because there, there was myself, Alan Cairns, who's now the Welsh Secretary, and Jeremy Miles, who's the Bre- Brexit Secretary of the Welsh Government. We all happened to be in the same class with other political people as well. Maybe a bit glib, but yeah, a bit, bit like a Welsh Eton. You wouldn't no- normally meet three people who've done different, uh, quite high prominent things in, in politics in the, in the same classroom. Welsh Eton without the fees and the top hats. Without the fees and the top hats, definitely, yeah. Which is probably to the good, Yeah, one might imagine. So you went and studied history and politics at Cardiff University. Correct, yeah. And I think you got very heavily involved in the National Union of Students there, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. I mean, um, I was a particularly poor student. I came up with a good degree somehow. Somebody must have been smiling on that day. But most of my time I was involved in agitation and generally being a nuisance. And it's a sort of... Uh, it's a sort of trend I've followed since. I went from that into three years of full-time student politics. I served as Deputy President of NUS Wales for, for two years. Met a number of sort of contemporary people who were involved in student politics uh, at that time who've been quite political and quite prominent. People like Alan Davis, who I rank as one of my, my, my longest friends, really. Known each other well over 25 years. But also people like David Trista and Rhiannith Richards, Leanne Wood, all bubbling around at the same time. It was quite a... It was quite a lively period. And von Gething, quite a lively period indeed. Absolutely. And then when eventually the the paradise of sabbatical um, life ended... And I tried to milk as many years out of it as I could. It sounds <laughs> as if you did. What direction did you then think of taking? Well, it was a deeply dull direction that I went to work for a student union, actually, because <laughs> I really didn't know much else. I'd, I'd never really thought about a career... I toyed with 
professional politics, but I don't know, it just really didn't sit very comfortably with me. And it was while I was at working at Swansea University in, in the student union there that I was approached to get involved in the Yes for Wales campaign uh, in the 97 referendum. I'd known Peter Hayne, who'd been my local MP in Neath, and I was respected Peter. At this time, I was particularly active in the Labour Party, in the, in the youth movement, and I was pretty uncompromising, actually, in being a supporter of devolution, when it wasn't, even from the time when it wasn't particularly fashionable. P- Peter had known that. He'd also known I'd got on well with people from other parties, and I guess some of these things combined, so that one fateful day I was I was asked to go and meet the uh, majestic figure of Leighton Andrews for a coffee, and um, after an hour of discussion I was um, offered a job within Yes for Wales, and for uh, about a year I worked there as the, the highest paid person. I said I didn't really earn very much, but there weren't many of us earning really, but in terms of the in terms of the structure I was the highest sort of full time member of staff and I did that for about ten, eleven months I think. And what was it that drew you to the campaign for a National Assembly, would you say? Well I thought it was the most profound question facing our country at at, at the time. I, I don't regret for a minute the work that that I put in and so many other people put in to make sure that we won that referendum. And you know, we've seen enough about referendums in, in recent years being close, but I I still remember always thinking that that would be closer than some people believed it would be. Okay, we, we didn't have the depth of the polling data, but something just didn't feel right. It wasn't a runaway victory in the same way that the one in 2011 was. It never felt like that to so me. So when you were involved in it, what was the strategy that you adopted to try to ensure victory? Well, we, we spent a lot of time developing a grassroots movement that tried to pull together the different political parties to work together, deploy consistent messaging. There was a big emphasis on actually having functioning units in each local authority in Wales. And I spent a lot of my time out there working with people trying to develop that and trying to just sort of harness energy, enthusiasm, expertise. And actually, I think that 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 was a, a big contributing factor alongside the macro messaging that we were putting out that, that actually enabled us to get it over the wire. So, you did that for 10 or 11 months, September 1997 yeah. uh, was uh, the victory day. Yeah. Then, of course, there was a period while the Assembly's mechanisms... Yeah, so uh, just, I sat on the side doing some pretty unremarkable work then, and actually did some industrial work at that time. I worked in industrial laundry uh, really? for a while, yeah, so I do, I, you know, now and again I do get my hands dirty. <laughs> and then, of course, you you quite quickly got involved in what is sort of politely referred to as public affairs, but um, yeah. perhaps more accurately described as lobbying. And I don't mind either description, actually, Martin. Um, I think it's the understanding, the clarification of what those means. So when you started out, what was your understanding of it, and how has that changed since? Well, I was brought in to work for part of a UK-wide company that was setting up an office in Cardiff, and they wanted me to run an information division. So the information division would then look at what the National Assembly and the Welsh Government were doing, and to try to make sense of that for clients, to produce some sort of bulletin or some sort of output. So I had a pretty free hand in designing that, and I spent the first five or six years in my sort of public affairs career just focused on information particularly rather than lobbying per se but so I've, I've always had quite a strong respect for that element and what my company does now still has a strong information element as well as as lobbying because I think 
trying to make sense of the complexity of politics has always been a challenge. Perhaps it's getting more challenging after recent votes in Westminster. It, it, it's always been a particular discipline. It's one I enjoy as well. Uh, how soon was it after you started uh, in this particular field that you decided to set up your own company? I set up Positive in 2006. So I started in '99. I worked for a company that went through a number of changes of ownership and ultimately collapsed in total chaos. At the time, my second child was about to be born, at the time the company was falling apart, and I was busy under a lot of pressure, quite rightly, to work out how how to bring some, some money home and, and support my, my family and my children. And I was approached during this quite chaotic period by virtually every other public affairs lobbying company in Cardiff and asked to join them. And I thought, well, actually, if I'm that marketable, I might try and do it on my own. I've never really looked back, actually. It's not something I ever set out to do, but it's something I've enjoyed immensely. Obviously, when the National Assembly was set up, it was a completely new institution, so there was no history there of lobbying uh, of any kind. How do you see the process having developed, and do you think that people have any reason to be concerned about lobbying in Wales? I think this is a really difficult question to answer. I think that and people would say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? I, I think that there's a lot of drama and supposition around the, the lobbying industry. Most of what we do is so deathly dull that um, if, you, if you saw the minutiae of the work of it, it is not, you know, it's not high drama, it's not high influence. I'd like to think I've always been on the ethical side of the industry as well. I've no problem with recording meetings between lobbyists, providing it's all forms of lobbyists, not just the vampirical end like myself, but I think there'd be a benefit to Welsh public life if all meetings between politicians, whether they're in government or not in government, are recorded. I'm talking about formal formal meetings here now. I think it would demystify some of the things. Does lobbying have a, a bad name? It, I don't think we've seen a particular scandal down here in Wales. You know, there are certain elements of ethical behaviour I wouldn't wouldn't do, which other which others might do. You know, others might take clients that I won't. I turned around, I've turned around a number of times over the years and, and refused to take a client if I ethically disagree, or if somebody I'm working with, if uh, if one of the team doesn't want to work on a client that they've got an ethical issue with, that's respected as well. And we we disclose our clients um, every three months in an open register. So, and I think that's a really important thing to be doing. I'm sure there's more that can be done on openness, but I'd rather have a proper dialogue with with politicians acting as grown-ups as well around what those levels of disclosure should be. Because I'm not a bad guy, genuinely, Martin. To what degree do you think politicians are susceptible to influence by lobbyists in Wales? I think politicians are open to a well-argued argument. And if I was to try and turn public affairs into some sort of scientific analysis, it's all about communicating with the right person in the right way at the right time. And if you get those basics right, then politicians are very open-minded. Because politicians also want to help. And most of the work that I do and other public affairs professionals do tends to be in the charitable or the voluntary sector. And actually, it's just about helping people 
navigate the complexity so that they are talking to the right person in, in, in the right way. And actually, I think politicians find that beneficial as well. They're busy people. They're, they're confronted by a myriad of demands on them. So actually getting that packaged ask, as it were, in, in a very clear way, way, I think is helpful. So, yeah, I suppose politicians are susceptible to good lobbying. It makes their job easier. One thing I think is significant about the way in which the, the culture around the Assembly has developed is that there is, as it were, an Assembly-linked community of yeah. people who work very largely for these charity, voluntary sector-type organisations that you speak of, yeah. but also some private sector ones as well. And they seem to spend a lot of their time having coffee with people around the bay, um, yeah. either in the assembly itself or in the various um, drinking establishments around, uh, mm-hmm. around the bay. Is there any reason why we should be wary of that? And, you know, I know that you yourself have friends with... You are friends of quite a few politicians. I am. And, and people might say, you know, it's wrong for politicians to associate with this chap who is representing clients... I mean, how would you respond to that sort of um, uh, suggestion? Well, I'm not a pariah, and that's why I I think the politicians warm to me, because I don't abuse their friendship. I've seen people in public affairs abuse the the friendship of politicians. It's not big, it's not clever, it's not pretty. I've formed some quite deep friendships with with different politicians over the years, and, okay, some people might raise an eyebrow at that, but my, my friends are better than that, that they will defend, defend I hope, <laughs> I'm assuming this, will defend our friendships. Because I, it's not like I'm going to them, asking them to do things for my clients. If anything, it's it's the opposite. We're, we're talking about things that are working on a different political level. A number of politicians that, that I formed close friendships with have used me as a sounding board where they might not necessarily want to talk to their party colleagues about something. And I think respecting and trusting that sort of relationship is really critically important. Um, going back to the point about coffees or whatever around the bay... I, I sometimes would, stronger drinks. So, sometimes stronger drinks, and perhaps, you know, I've been one who's been more prone to that than the coffee, I'll be honest with you. But um, that, that, that's prevalent in any political culture. I think what's important is what is a formal meeting and where asks are being made. And actually, politicians, broadly, if you're wanting to talk to them about something serious, they want you to do that in an environment which is regulated, which keeps them looking clean as well, so, so that they don't want to do that over, over a coffee and what have you. They will want a proper formal meeting. I'd, I'd actually be a bit of a failure as, as a lobbyist if I was carrying messages for my clients right, left and centre anyway. I much prefer to prep the clients and to work with them that they make an ask in a formal meeting themselves. Because, you know, why should my word on something be trusted when the client isn't, isn't apparent or isn't visible? You know, those are the relationships that need to be built up. I suppose one of the constraints there has been not even necessarily on politicians uh, at the assembly but but even politicians in Westminster has been the existence of European legislation on environmental uh, emissions and things like that. Now nevertheless 
there has been some concern, particularly from left-wing groups, mm-hmm. about the influence of employer organisations and also the influence of, um, yes, big business in terms of their ability to get away with minimal working standards, environmental standards, that sort of thing. That tends to be more Westminster. It it does. I've never taken on anyone who worked in that sphere. I've never been approached by anyone who worked in that sphere. And I'm not aware uh, particularly that 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 sort of industry has been working down here on a Wales level. I think as the powers of the... Welsh government have, have, have grown, particularly, um, you know, there's much more energy powers that have just been devolved, and plus we'd see a different pattern potentially if we if and when we do Brexit, that maybe that that will come and infect us in a, in a number of levels. I do have sympathy with some people who are calling for greater transparency around lobbying because of those very issues. I don't want to be tarred by that noxious brush. Well, I think, yes, uh, you mentioned Brexit, and of course the problem might arise that if we have a right-wing government at Westminster, it's going to seek to uh, water down environmental protections, employment protections, such as they are in the UK. And therefore, the the power of lobbyists representing such organisations uh, or such views could increase. Uh, and has to be watched and uh, watched very carefully indeed. Because you know, there's a, there's a big difference between acting for clients who are ethical and acting generally in the public interest, and working for sleazy corporates. And I don't know of others that are working for sleazy corporates, but we have to be vigilant just to protect our own industry. Though, of course, you know, protecting the public is the biggest factor. But you know, there's a huge reputational risk here potentially. You're right. So the factors that you would like to see built into any beefed-up regulation of lobbyists operating in Wales at the Assembly. Openness, disclosure and a genuine conversation that respects public affairs and lobbying for what we contribute, Okay, I I think that it's all very easy for some people now and again to chase a headline, but they need to reflect on the reality of the situation and what tens of us that are contributing positively to uh, the development of public policy. So do you think there's a need for um, more transparency in terms of registers? I think that there's uh, a good case to be made for registering lobbyists. And I'm a member of the Umbrella, umbrella Group for Lobbyists in Wales, Public Affairs Cymru, and we, um, we are hoping to, over time, develop almost like a gold standard register. So where people, when they, uh, when they uh, sign up as members with us, they're now expected to sign a code of conduct. took years to get there, but now it's there in black and white. And we want, we want that to be a gold standard so that when politicians are then lobbied, they're checking as well whether somebody's a member of Public Affairs Cymru before meeting with them or in terms of how they view that meeting and what they can expect in terms of transparency and openness. But it's, it's all very well us doing stuff from a lobbying side. But you need the maturity of the discussion, both at assembly level and government level as well, to make sure that it works in everyone's interest. You referred also to the possibility of registering or declaring formal meetings between lobbyists and ministers 
Was it, was yeah, it yeah, yeah. ministers or, uh, any or, or, or any politician? During the reviews of lobbying, I've been um, that have been carried out, and there've been two of them in the last five or six years. Public affairs Cymru's evidence, which I've I've been part of presenting, has uh, has been advocating that level of openness. So it's come from our side, not from politician side. The trouble might be in terms of definition when. Is when a is a meeting form? not a meeting? Yeah, mm. and and that yeah, look that is that is a difficult one. The only way that you can start to crack that that is if you actually start to to meaningfully work together on both sides to flesh out that that meaning and that common understanding. I mean, only recently I was accused of breaking the rules, but nobody's yet ex- explained to me what the rules were. The Welsh government said that in response to a meeting I shouldn't have been at that the rules have now been tightened without explaining what the tightening of those rules are. Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody in the Welsh Government, but I also don't want to be in the wrong. So just explain what the rules are. You know, Stop stop creating totems and and just strange playing to the gallery. Let's, let's get something real and meaningful that everyone can abide by, because, do you know what? It will then have been co-produced, which is supposed to be something we're very good at in Wales. Because it could be very easy, couldn't it, to be out in a bar with a minister and to and look, represent the interests of a yeah. client and say, look, what we sure. want is and, this. And in my experience, and I'll speak frankly, if on the rare occasions that I'm out in a bar with a minister, if I was to make representations like that, you wouldn't catch ministers in the bar with me again because it would be an abuse of friendship. Now, there's no pretense that people like Carl Sargent and I weren't particularly close friends, right? And you know that. You, you saw me speak at Carl's funeral. I was asked to speak on behalf of the family. A few months earlier, I was in Nick Ramsey's wedding as his best man. A few months later, I went to Bethan Jenkins, now Bethan Syed's wedding, in India as a, as a friend of hers, right? I, I have political friendships. The way you keep those friendships is by keeping different bits of your life in boxes. Because I can tell you now, even if I was buying all the drinks all night, which I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not in a position to do, even if I was doing that, there is no way you can maintain political friendships if you're bombarding politicians with uh, lobbying material and undue influence. They are good and noble people who look for friendship in politics, often across party boundaries or in non-party scenarios, and the friendships would not last long if that was the way things were conducted. I know you mentioned Carl Sargent, and I know that you were very deeply affected by his death. Still am. As indeed are many people. What significance do you think the Carl Sargent case has on Welsh politics? I think it's the most profound thing I personally have ever experienced in in my personal and professional life. I think it still has immense reverberations. I think some people have tried to pretend that it's business as usual by these days and that, you know, those of us who haven't got over it or come to terms with it or still banging on about a coroner's inquiry or the QC inquiry were promised two days after he died, but still hasn't begun its work, that they were somehow obsessive. But it, it did transform everything. Because one thing I know about Carl, and I saw this time and time again with him, was his level of humanity and decency. And he hated to see people suffering. 
And honestly, the amount of unnecessary suffering that so many of us have, have gone through by a, a transformation of politics, a transformation of politics, friendships of 20, 30 years, broken, shattered. And, you know, this doesn't end up in the newspaper. This doesn't get reported. But, you know, there the, are the fundamental things that have completely broken down. Different camps now existing within the Labour Party, for example. Very clearly defined camps. And, and it would be wrong of me to, to indicate who's in which camp and, 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 and all the rest of it. But, it, it, yes, genuinely profound, Martin. And sorry if I was rambling there, but I'm still very emotional about the issue. Absolutely. And let's just turn to the current state of Welsh politics. It seems to me that there is a real possibility that the next election in 2021, Labour could find itself out of power. What do you think about the prospects of that happening? How, how likely do you think that is? And if it did happen, what would that mean for Welsh politics? Right. I don't think it's as close as it was in 2007, where you had the, the potential of the rainbow, because you had, over a period of two or three years, active cooperation between every other party in the Assembly other than Labour. So a culture was built up. Coalitions or, or, or arrangements don't happen overnight. A culture of trust and dialogue was built up between the others. And that's why Labour was on a really bad foot in, in 2007. Looking at where we are now, it's entirely plausible, entirely plausible that Labour loses some seats. You know, people have been forecasting that for years. Myself, uh, on occasion, I was amazed that Labour ended up on 29 in the last Assembly election. Absolutely gobsmacked by it. But... There is a big difference now. There is no close culture of cooperation between the other parties in the Assembly in the same way there has been in the past. Partly, that is down to UKIP, who just don't fit easily with the other political parties. Partly, it is down to the um, splintering of politics with several independents and what have you, sitting, sitting in the chamber, but also the relationship between Plaid and the Conservatives isn't fantastic. And I can be, you know, I could point to several Conservatives and several Plaid members who would not be happy with the formal coalition uh, in exactly the way that some rejected it back in 2007. And, you know, I think one big ingredient that could help unseat a Labour government in Wales would be the return of a Labour government in Westminster. Because actually, I think that was one of the things that brought all the other opposition parties together back in 2007. While there is a Conservative government in Westminster, I do struggle to see how the sort of political dynamic feeds through into creating a situation where the other parties work together. Having said that, Leanne Wood almost became First Minister. It only needed one or two people to have changed the the name that they uttered when they were asked the question, who do you want to be First Minister, if they'd said Leanne Wood rather than Carmen Jones, she would be First Minister now. Labour loses a couple of seats. Entirely plausible that somebody else's name is uttered in a higher degree than Mark Drakeford's. The big stumbling block is this. It is the order in which Plaid and the Conservatives end up in that election. I would suspect 
that plied people will find it much, much more difficult to say Paul Davis than Conservatives will say Adam Price. If a Conservative like Janet Finn Saunders can say Leanne Wood, then any Conservative can say any plied name. I am not sure the same applies the other way around. So it does depend on who the actual candidate is. And I think for it to be credible as an alternative to Labour, that would mean the plaid has to be slightly either ahead in the polls or ahead in the number of seats uh, that they've got post that assembly election. Though I could be completely wrong, because, you know, as, as recent events have shown, it's becoming increasingly difficult to make any sense or predict anything within politics. If... Labour were out of office, how would the dynamic of Welsh politics change and for, and how significant would that be in historical terms? I think it's impossible to say because Labour has been in power in, in Wales or certainly the majority party in Wales quite comfortably for a, for 100 years. I think they had a jolt back in 1999 and recovered from that jolt. Uh, and recovered rather well, actually, and I think it was um, the stewardship of Rodri Morgan over that first that first decade was was critical in terms of bedding it down, making Labour um, a coherent party that was at ease with itself as well. And you know, you you you've written uh, yourself on what a toxic period that was. I think it was much more dangerous then, by the way, than anything Labour's facing now on a Wales level, on a Wales level, anyway. There are some that would argue that once Labour is out of power, it is all but finished, and they they cite the Scottish example. I would urge a a, a strong degree of caution on this, because the one thing Wales hasn't done over the last 20 years at any election is followed Scotland. Um, And I I don't imagine why it should start following that pattern now. Um, If anything, Labour is the luckiest party in in Welsh political history, um, and we could find ourselves at, at the at the point of the next election where they confound us pundits yet again and hold on. Of course, the, there's got to be a point at which any party's luck runs out, but they seem quite energised and quite together on a Wales level at the moment. So I wouldn't write them off yet. If and when they ever do end out of office, it'll be absolutely profound. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Darren. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.